European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 43, Issue 41, Focus Issue, Clinical Trials, by Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibition, the saga continues. The issue begins with the 2022 ESC stroke ERS guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary hypertension. Developed by the Task Force for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Pulmonary Hypertension of the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC, and the European Respiratory Society, or ERS. Endorsed by the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, or ISHLT, and the European Reference Network on Rare Respiratory Diseases, or ERN Lung. The authors note that pulmonary hypertension, or PH, is a pathophysiological disorder that may involve multiple clinical conditions and may be associated with a variety of cardiovascular, or CV, and respiratory diseases. The complexity of managing PH requires a multifaceted, holistic, and multidisciplinary approach with active involvement of patients with PH in partnership with clinicians. Streamlining the care of patients with PH in daily clinical practice is challenging, but essential requirement for effectively managing PH. In recent years, substantial progress has been made in detecting and managing PH, and new evidence has been integrated in a timely manner in this fourth edition of the ESC-ERS guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of PH. Reflecting the multidisciplinary input into managing patients with PH and interpreting new evidence, the task force included cardiologists and pneumologists, a thoracic surgeon, methodologists and patients. These comprehensive clinical practice guidelines cover the whole spectrum of PH, with an emphasis on diagnosing and treating pulmonary arterial hypertension and chronic thromboembolic PH. The issue continues with a focus on clinical trials. Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or MRA-associated hyperkalemia, limits the utilization of these drugs in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, in spite of their well-recognized prognostic benefit. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Atirama for the management of hyperkalemia in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, the DIAMOND trial. Javid Butler and colleagues from the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi, USA, investigate the impact of patirama on the serum potassium level and its ability to enable specified target doses of renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitor, or RASI, use in patients with HEFREF. A total of 1,642 patients with HEFREF and current or a history of RASI-related hyperkalemia were screened and 1,195 were enrolled in the run-in phase with Batirama and optimization of the RASI therapy, greater than or equal to 50% recommended dose of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, stroke angiotensin receptor blocker, stroke angiotensin receptor neprilism inhibitor, and 50 mg of an MRA, spironolactone or a pleronone. Specified target doses of the RASI therapy 
were achieved in 878, or 84.6% of patients. 439 were randomized to platyrema and 439 to placebo. All patients, physicians and outcome assessors were blinded to treatment assignment. The primary endpoint was the between-group difference in the adjusted mean change in serum potassium. Five hierarchical secondary endpoints were assessed. At the end of treatment, the adjusted mean change in potassium was plus 0.03 millimoles per litre in the patyrima group and plus 0.13 millimoles per litre in the placebo group, P being less than 0.001. Risk of hyperkalemia greater than 5.5 millimoles per litre, hazard ratio or HR 0.63, reduction of MRA dose, HR 0.62, and total adjusted hyperkalemia events were significantly lower with patyrema. Hyperkalemia-related morbidity-adjusted events, win ratio 1.53, P being less than 0.001, and total RASI use score, win ratio 1.25, P equaling 0.048, favoured the patyrema arm. Adverse events were similar between groups. Butler et al. conclude that concurrent use of patyrema and high-dose MRAs reduces the risk of recurrent hyperkalemia. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Milton Packer from the Baylor Heart and Vascular Institute in Dallas, Texas, USA. Packer notes that by salvaging the Diamond Trial, investigators delivered real enlightenment. Specifically, the vast majority approximately 80% of patients with HEFREF and a history of hyperkalemia will not experience recurrent hyperkalemia in the absence of patyrema, even when challenged with doses of MRAs that are probably higher than those needed to reduce mortality. Importantly, the proportion of patients who tolerate MRAs without hyperkalemia and without potassium binders will only increase in the future, since two foundational drugs – Sacubitril stroke valsartin and sodium glucose cotransporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors mitigate the risk of hyperkalemia while having direct benefits on heart failure or HF outcomes. These immensely reassuring findings mean that if we truly seek to improve outcomes in clinical practice, we must assuage physicians' exaggerated fears about the dangers of hyperkalemia since trial based MRA dosing strategies currently represent an exceptionally cost-effective and well-tolerated, but regrettably scorned, way to slow the progression of HEFREF. Observational studies suggested that recent influenza infection is associated with increased risk of CV events. In this regard, influenza vaccination could represent a potential therapy to prevent CV events. A recent meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials comparing influenza vaccination versus placebo or control showed a 45% relative risk reduction in major adverse CV events. However, the impact of early vaccination after an acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, has not been compared against standard of care vaccination after discharge or in the outpatient care setting. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Influenza Vaccination Strategy in Acute Coronary Syndromes 
the VIP ACS trial. Henri Fonseca and colleagues from the Hospital Israelita Albert Einstein in Sao Paulo, Brazil, evaluate whether a strategy of double-dose influenza vaccination during hospitalization for an ACS compared with standard-dose outpatient vaccination, as recommended by current guidelines, would further reduce the risk of major cardiopulmonary events. The VIP-ACS trial was a pragmatic, randomized, multi-center, active comparator, open-label trial with blinded outcome adjudication comparing two strategies of influenza vaccination following an ACS. Double-dose quadrivalent inactivated vaccine before hospital discharge versus standard-dose quadrivalent inactivated vaccine administered in the outpatient setting 30 days after randomization. The primary outcome was a hierarchical composite of all-cause death, myocardial infarction, or MI, stroke, unstable angina, hospitalization for HF, current coronary revascularization, and hospitalization for respiratory causes, analyzed by the win-ratio method. Patients were followed for 12 months. During two influenza seasons, 1,801 participants were included in 25 centers in Brazil. The primary outcome was not different between groups. Adverse events were infrequent and did not differ between groups. The authors conclude that among patients hospitalized with an ACS, double-dose influenza vaccination before discharge does not reduce cardiopulmonary outcomes compared with standard-dose vaccination in the outpatient setting. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Orly Vardini from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. Vardini notes that although timing of an influenza vaccination may not have affected the risk of the clinical endpoints studied, there are advantages to early receipt of an influenza vaccine. It takes two weeks post-vaccination to mount an adequate immune response, which argues for early vaccination so that full protection can be in place at the start of the influenza season. Offering vaccinations early may also increase its implementation. In the VIP-ACS trial, of the 896 participants randomized to in-hospital double-dose influenza vaccine, only 11 participants did not receive the vaccine. In contrast, of the 905 participants assigned to outpatient standard-dose influenza vaccine, 111 did not receive the vaccine. Delaying vaccination may increase the likelihood that patients will not receive the vaccine due to scheduling or other constraints. While it is well known that prevention plays a key role in the prevention of cardiovascular disease, or CVD, the utility of population screening is less established. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Cost-Effectiveness of Population Screening versus No Screening for Cardiovascular Disease, the Danish Cardiovascular Screening Trial, Dankavas. Rike Sugord and colleagues from the University of Southern Denmark assess the cost-effectiveness of such screening versus no screening in a post-hoc analysis of the Danish Cardiovascular Screening, or Dankavas, trial. In this trial, an average 5% relative risk reduction in overall mortality was observed at 5.6 years follow-up in screened versus non-screened subjects. 
This result was driven by a remarkable and statistically significant 11% relative reduction for men in the age group of 65 to 69 years, whereas men in the age group of 70 to 74 years had no benefit. Screening was based on low-dose computed tomography to detect coronary artery calcification and aortic stroke iliac aneurysms, limb blood pressure measurement to detect peripheral artery disease and hypertension, telemetric assessment of the heart rhythm to detect atrial fibrillation, and measurements of cholesterol and hemoglobin A1c levels. The incremental cost of screening for the entire healthcare sector was €207 Euros per invitee. The corresponding incremental cost-effectiveness ratios were of €10,812 per life year and €9,075 per quality-adjusted life year, which would be cost-effective for a willingness to pay of €20,000. Assessment of population heterogeneity showed that cost-effectiveness could be more attractive for younger men without CVD at baseline. The authors conclude that comprehensive screening for CVD is overall cost-effective at conventional thresholds for willingness to pay and competitive with the cost-effectiveness of common cancer screening programs. The screening target group, however, needs to be settled. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Mark Latke from the Stanford University and Philip Greenland from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois, USA. The authors conclude that the Dankovas trial provides an important proof of principle that a CV screening program based on simple, inexpensive tests and preventative medications can be both clinically effective and cost-effective. This is a welcome message and should encourage the development and evaluation of CV screening programs in other health systems. Obesity is common and associated with a worse CV outcome. Notably, obesity exhibits unique phenotypic features in HF with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. Therefore, understanding the efficacy and safety of new therapies in HEFPEF patients with obesity is important. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Dapagliflozin for Heart Failure According to Body Mass Index, The Deliver Trial, Carly Adamson from the University of Glasgow in Glasgow in the United Kingdom assessed the effects of dapagliflozin, an SGLT2 inhibitor, according to body mass index, or BMI, in a post-hoc analysis of the DELIVER trial. BMI was analysed by World Health Organization, or WHO, categories and as a continuous variable against restricted cubic splines. Compared with placebo, Dapagliflozin significantly reduced the risk of the primary outcome, a composite of time to the first occurrence of worsening HF event or CV death, to a similar extent across these categories, HR 0.89, 0.87, 0.74, 0.78 and 0.72 respectively. The placebo-corrected change in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Total Symptom Score with Dapagliflozin at 8 months was 0.9, 2.5, 1.9, 2.7, and 8.6 points respectively, P for interaction equaling 0.03. The placebo-corrected change in weight at 12 months followed a similar trend. 
The authors conclude that obesity is common in patients with HFPEF and is associated with higher rates of HF hospitalization and worse health status. Treatment with dapagliflozin improves CV outcomes across the spectrum of BMI, leads to greater symptom improvements in patients with obesity compared to those without, and has the additional benefit of causing modest weight loss. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Stefan Anker from the Charité Universitets Medizan in Berlin, Germany, and Mohamed Sharik Usman and Javid Butler from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, USA. The authors note that these benefits are probably driven by many mechanisms other than weight changes. However, the exact mechanisms in play are still being studied. Regardless, this class of drugs should not be considered a primary weight loss management pharmacotherapy for HF patients. Other therapies are still needed for this, particularly for patients with HEF-PEF. SGLT2 inhibition improves the prognosis of patients with symptomatic HF. However, trials investigating the effects of this drug class in patients following acute MI are lacking. Dirk von Lewinsky and colleagues from the Medical University of Graz in Austria have produced a fast-track clinical research article entitled Empagliflozin in Acute Myocardial Infarction, the EMI Trial. In this academic, multi-center, double-blind trial, patients N equaling 476, with acute MI accompanied by a large creatine kinase elevation, greater than 800 international units per liter, were randomly assigned to empagliflozin 10 mg or matching placebo once daily within 72 hours of percutaneous coronary intervention. The primary outcome was the N-terminal pro-brain natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BNP change, over 26 weeks. Secondary outcomes included changes in electrocardiographic parameters. NT-pro-BNP reduction was significantly greater in the empagliflozin group compared with placebo, being 15% lower after adjusted for baseline NT-pro-BNP, sex, and diabetes status, P equaling 0.026. Absolute left ventricular ejection fraction improvement was significantly greater, P equaling 0.015, and left ventricular end-systolic and end-diastolic volumes were significantly lower in the empagliflozin group compared with placebo. The authors conclude that in patients with a recent MI, empagliflozin is associated with a significantly greater NT-pro-BMP reduction over 26 weeks, accompanied by a significant improvement in echocardiographic functional and structural parameters. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Josephine Harrington from the Duke University Department of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina, USA, Stefan Anker from the Charité Universitets Medizane in Berlin, Germany, and Javid Butler from the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi, USA. The authors conclude that the EMI trial has made an important contribution to understanding the safety and potential efficacy of SGLT2 inhibitors following MI. In this study, empagliflozin was well tolerated immediately post-MI with percutaneous intervention and was associated with improvements in NT-pro-BNP and markers of cardiac structure and function. 
These findings increase our optimism that these drugs may provide clinical benefit to the post-MI population. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, Hypernatremia and Subclinical Chronic Kidney Disease, Antelis Sarafidis and colleagues from the Aristotle University of Thessalonica in Greece comment on the recent publication, Middle-Aged Serum Sodium Levels in the Upper Part of Normal Range and the Risk of Heart Failure. By Natalia Dmitrieva from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, USA. Dmitrieva et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that the listeners of this issue of the European Heart Journal will find it of interest.